Welcome to another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. This was uh, a real privilege and a lot of fun to have my guest today, Ian Hersey Ali, who is probably well known to most of you, but um, one of the most important intellectuals working today on issues around free speech, human rights, feminism, foreign policy, etc. And she's certainly uh, no stranger to controversy. Uh, and even to personal danger, not least because of her fierce criticism of Islam and uh, Islamic culture. We go back and really dig, her, dig into her own journey, uh, personal journey from Somalia, to Saudi Arabia, and then to asylum in Holland to escape from a, an arranged marriage, and then finally to a, an academic career in the US. And alongside that, her own psychological journey from a, a, a tribal mindset uh, where she grew up to a really zealous a religious conviction. I didn't know that she'd actually been burning Salman Rushdie's book during that period. But then finally to a, a very strongly held classical liberalism. Um, along the way, we talk about the limits to Islamic liberalization as well as its possibilities, the contests around free speech, critical race theory, the state of current intellectual and academic debate. Uh, she's quite pessimistic, more more pessimistic than, than I am about some of those issues, um, the risks of self-censorship, where I, I do agree with some of her concerns, um, much more much more along the way. We also talk about her latest book called Prey, Immigration, Islam, and the Erosion of Women's Rights. We, we don't agree on everything, of course, but it's really, really fascinating conversation. As I say, it was a real pleasure to, to have her on. As she said at the end, you know, not agreeing is, is the whole point. So uh, I hope you get as much out of it as I did. Ayan Hirsi Ali, thank you for joining me on Dialogues. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I'm very, very sorry um, that I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Um, actually, I heard you speak many, many years ago at the Royal Society in London with Timothy Garton Ash. And, and I remember it was a very, in a very small room and you had high security um, back then. I, I could look up what the year that it was. It was a long time ago. Um, uh, and it was real an insight into your world. And so I just, I just for those people who don't know your background, I think probably most people do. If you could talk just a little bit about your own journey and how, how that journey turned you into the kind of liberal you are now. I should say, if there's, you, know, you don't need me to say this to you, but for an American audience, the sort of liberal in a more classical European sense. sense. But yeah, how did, how, how did, how, intellectually, how does your biography inform your intellectual convictions? Yeah, and, and if you want to get really into the nitty-gritty of different liberals, how I am different from, my liberalism is different from that of Timothy Garton Ash. Mm. Uh, well, I, I mean, I grew up, I think that bit is, uh, people are familiar with, um, I grew up, I was born in Somalia, I was born in a Muslim household, my family moved around, we lived in uh, Saudi Arabia, we lived in Ethiopia, and then we moved to Kenya. That's where I went to part of my elementary school and high school uh, was in Nairobi, Kenya. That's where I learned to speak English. Um, and during my teen periods, this, this time that I'm in Kenya, which is the 1980s, it's when I learn English and I'm reading books in English, published in the United States and mostly in the UK, but also in the mid-80s, it's when I get attracted to radical Islam uh, brought to us by the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, in 1989, I took part uh, in a book burning of Salman Rushdie's, <laughs> so that just gives you 
kind of how complex my background is. Um, so on the one hand, we were dancing to songs by Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie. And then on the other hand, I was wearing the full-on burqa and preaching to Christian classmates that they should abandon their religion and come to ours. Um, but fast forward, uh, in 1992, my father, who had been away in the 1980s, comes back from Ethiopia. My father was active in politics, and this is in Somali politics. And so he was in exile, and he had exiled himself to Ethiopia, not with us. And in 1992, when he comes back, I'm 22 years old, and he decides at that point that it's time for his daughters to get married. And there's a man there uh, from Canada looking for a wife, and my father and he decide that I'm the right person for him. And I don't agree with that, but I have no way of getting away from it while in Kenya. And luckily for me, this man was a citizen of Canada, so he had to go back. I wasn't required to live with him immediately. We had to go through that whole immigration process, which was even then incredibly difficult. And a relative from Germany offers my father and my new husband that if uh, I was sent to Germany, then it would be easier for him, for my uncle to help us prepare my immigration paperwork from Germany to Canada. Uh, and my father sends me off to Germany, and I'm there for less than a week, and then I take the train to the Netherlands, and I ask for asylum. And they grant it to me within four weeks of my application. And from then on, I have... It, it's, it's a difficult... I make it sound a little easier and more romantic, but it became easier for me. I found myself in a context where I could say, I don't want to live with this man, and I don't want to repeat the life, uh, the difficult life that my mother had. Um, and, and then I take off. And it's, it's in the Netherlands that I, I learned the Dutch language. I also get acquainted with liberalism the way most Dutch people view liberalism. Uh, and I would say if initially it wasn't a philosophy. It was just really a lived, practiced experience. <laughs> um, and um, then in 1995, I enrolled at the University of Leiden and I study political science. And that's where I get acquainted with ideologies, the different sets of ideologies. I, I was very fascinated by political theory um, and the different liberalisms, uh, classical liberalism versus um, neoliberalism versus the laissez-faire type of liber liberalism, and then the branching out into social democracy and socialism, and um, and then initially, you know, conservatism, and then you know, Edwin Burke and uh, the Whigs of the UK, mm. uh, what's now the UK and how that's uh, actually also part of classical liberalism. The history of the Enlightenment, very, very fascinating. Uh, and this is from between 1985 to 1999. I graduated in the year 2000 in September. Hmm. I want to have you pause there. We'll come on to some of your later work um, and your later career. But it's it's fascinating to hear the way in which you experienced illiberal illiberalism and then you experience liberalism as practices before coming to the intellectual foundation. So it wasn't so would it be fair to say that your 
commitment to liberalism was first of all a, a practical one. Actually, if you think about the history of Holland, of course, you know, has always been as a refuge for, for free thinkers. But yeah. you lived you lived liberalism before you learned liberalism by the sounds of it. Absolutely. Uh, and I lived authoritarianism and illiberalism before mm. I understood their intellectual underpinnings, whether it was theocratic or socialist uh, slash communist. I mean, a lot of people now wonder why I'm so virulently anti-woke. And that's because I really understand exactly uh, where that sort of uh, thinking can lead to, what sorts of practices it can lead to. Yes, any kind of ideological conformity ended up being something that you were you're sort of allergic. Uh, it's sort of phys- it's almost a physical allergy before it's an intellectual opposition. It, it seems to me much of your writing and speaking it, it has that visceral sense to it because it's been lived for you. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I say to young students that who grew up in liberal societies who are not familiar with illiberalism uh, in in any sort of way um, that perhaps before you campaign for some of these changes based on postmodernist theories or theocracies or before you just give away uh, people like Timothy Garton Ash even not a young person but before you entertain these thoughts just go and spend some time in the countries where these uh, principles apply um, and and I think experience in some ways is really the best teacher ever yeah, it's interesting when you think about some of the great liberals of the 20th century, uh, people, I'm thinking about people like Karl Popper and Isaiah Berlin, uh, having had direct experience, yes. and even, I guess, you know, people like Vaclav Havel in some way, in a different way, a direct experience of or authoritarianism, uh, either either directly or, or indirectly. I actually just had Ron Daniels on my podcast who runs Johns Hopkins, and his liberalism is influenced by the fact that his parents fled from the Holocaust yeah. uh, and, and to Canada, where they were one of the few, the few Jewish families that made it through to Canada. But one last personal question, and this speaks, it's gonna, this speaks a bit to the issue about Islam, which we're going to come on to and how that interacts with immigration, which you, you cover in your latest book. But when did you... So you described yourself as a, a zealous uh, Muslim burning books and so on. And then <laughs> yeah. a few years later, you're not that... Was there a loss of faith? Was there a moment? Or was there a crisis of faith? Was there a, a moment when it all fell away? Was there a conversion? How? What's, what's the journey from, from being a true believer, by the sounds of it, to being... Um, yeah, I think the journey's always been this this dissatisfaction, uh, and and this has been continuous in my life, and I think in most people's lives, when they commit to um, the loyalty. So with me, it begins with the loyalty of the clan. Uh, I come from a tribal society, and it's all based on the bloodline. You know, you're just loyal to your cousins and your relatives, and what they want, and in exchange for that, you're protected. And so there was uh, watching my mother when we left, when my father went away, the, we were provided for uh, at a minimum by our clanmates. Um, but we led a very difficult life and in poverty. And my mother was in constant misery. And I remember feeling terrible for her and, and being dissatisfied with the way the clan system works. And then... Uh, uh, at that point, you're seeking something else. 
And so when these members of the Muslim Brotherhood people come and they say there's something that transcends clan and family and bloodline and it's God and it's our religion, that's fascinating and it's attractive and it's also, it seems to answer all the moral questions in a very simple way. There's right, there's wrong, there's in, there's out. And here's a list of things that you may do and things that you may not do. You have to abstain and refrain from. And um, uh, and in the beginning, it gives you clarity. It gives you a sense of purpose. Um, but the dissatisfaction continues because the <laughs> even those of us who adopted this, uh, we are now with God or God's people. We still have to face the reality of uh, the basics of food and shelter and safety and, you know, where, what is the purpose? How long am I going to live and uh, what, what's the purpose of my life? And I think that sense of not being satisfied with the answers I was getting and in particular the fact that I wasn't allowed to even ask these questions, I think that continued. That was that nagging um, feeling uh, and thinking in, in my mind and I think that led me to then um, not it wasn't a moment of oh now I see the light uh, it's never been like that with me but I think it was a drifting off a drifting away from faith without giving it up without saying oh I, I don't believe anymore mm. so this is late 1980s and then this uh, uh this marriage comes uh, that my father's conducting and by then I can actually see my future because I think if I go with this man and I do the right thing, I'm going to live just like my mother. I'll be miserable, I'll have no control over my life, uh, I have no clue uh, whether this man is going to stay there to protect me or not, my father didn't. Uh, and in any case, I have nothing in common with him. And I think by then, having read so many um, books of the infidel <laughs> and watched so many movies of the infidel having been exposed to Western culture, um, I was uh, able to think maybe there's something else out there mm -hmm. other than that light bulb going off. So again, that's interesting because the, the sort of journey from the sense of kin and clan Tri the tribal society which you describe very well in your writing through to the search to escape from that through some some universalizing religion yeah. and then realizing that, that in itself was insufficiently narrow and so then moving to to i guess an embrace of the inherent and inescapable messiness and complexity and pluralism and unending dissent of a modern liberal society so you opted for the messiness and difficulty and exchange and friction uh, of of liberalism as opposed to either the sort of closed world of the tribe or the simple world of the religion is that a fair summary of your journey i think it's a fair summary and i think it's a fair summary from uh, after i graduate from the university of leiden where i then am able to connect the practical experience with the intellectual underpinnings when you know the theoretical framework emerges and I understand, oh, okay, so these are the ideas that shape the world. But initially, in the first sort of five years, maybe seven years, uh, when I arrive in the Netherlands, I think it's the fascination of well, just how different 
the Netherlands was as a place. Uh, I mean, uh, we asked for asylum. There are all these rules and procedures that they actually uh, honor. And uh, we are sheltered, we are given food, and I'm constantly asking myself, well, they're not, uh, they're being so generous to us, outsiders coming in and saying, can we be a part of your society? But that generosity wasn't explained on tribal ground, it wasn't explained on theological grounds. And so I kept asking them, then why are you doing it? You're just feeding strangers and sheltering them and giving them med medical care and free education. And they would just keep going back to their constitution and their uh, way of life. And um, they say, well, our government signed a treaty with other nations, but why did they do that? <laughs> and so mm. through that process, um, I, I got myself into understanding into figuring out, okay, so this is how it works. And then, yes, I got to a point, this is 9-11-2001, when uh, maybe the big, the big bang of the 21st century, I think the 21st century started with that incident. Um, I think that's when I sort of was made to actually think about it and ask myself, so where does my loyalty lie? Because I was a constant, my Somali family members were saying, you're criticizing our religion and you're, you're shaming, you're bringing shame upon us by exposing, or, or, and then I wasn't just exposing it, I was condemning it too, uh, condemning the way women are treated and condemning our, the way our societies are disorganized and chaotic. And so I had to then choose uh, or was forced to choose. And, and that was really after, uh, I'm very thankful for those five years in the University of Leiden where I was taught how to think and to think critically, uh, and to think as an independent individual. Um, and, and that led me then to say, if I were to compare all of these different ideas and frameworks for life, I prefer liberalism to them mm. all, yeah. with all its shortcomings. And that's the great thing about liberalism, is that you can, you know, the shortcomings are transparent, yeah, the, well, the shortcomings are almost sort of baked in, aren't they? The yeah. falsifiability and so on. It's it's like Ch yeah. Churchill's quote about democracy: "It's the worst of all the system, except except all the others." Yeah. Um, and and then just your your commitment to free speech and to criti criticism and to sort of liberal dialogue. And I know you, you've written a little bit about John Stuart Mill, who's my subject. You do this really nice conversation in one of your books between yeah. the Prophet Muhammad and yeah uh, and, and Mill. So uh, maybe we'll come back a bit to Mill, but you then yourself, as a result of your outspokenness, it, even outspokenness sounds pejorative, mm -hmm. as a result of your speaking out on these issues, you yourself became the target uh, or, or, and therefore security concerns. And so I'd just like to talk a little bit about that experience because you, you talked about, you became the sort of Salman Rushdie of your day in a way. Um, and it's, it's in stark contrast to what's currently called cancel culture yes. in the US. You know, in the US... Being cancelled means someone says something nasty to you and maybe you lose your lucrative writing gig at the New York Times or something. But mm -hmm. cancel culture means something very different to you and has done from the beginning, right? Um, and there are similarities between the, uh, the cancel culture uh, unfolding now in the US and the culture that tried to cancel my life. And I think I, that's what, what you're getting at is... Yes. Um, the uh, I my father had a conversation with me. This is back in two thousand and two, 
where he said that there were Somali men calling him from the Netherlands, from Sweden, and I think from the UK, who were, and he was in London at the time, and who, who were saying to him, if you don't stop her, we are going to stop her. And so he was asking me on this phone call to recant, uh, to seek redemption, and go back to the fold of the faithful uh, as a Muslim, and, and just shut up. Because if I didn't, if I didn't go silent, then I was going to risk my life. And um, I ignored him. But I understood why. I had done so many things. So I blasphemed in Islam by saying that I didn't believe in God myself. And I had, you know, I didn't mean to do it as openly, but I was doing a radio interview and, and the interviewer asked me very directly, so you say all of these things, you say Islam is backward, you say it um, treats women, but you say all of these things. Does it mean you believe? And I hesitated and then just said no, not understanding that this is national radio and it carries. And, mm. and that, to leave the faith, to leave Islam, is to invite punishment by death. And that punishment doesn't have to be carried out by a government. It can be carried out by any individual who feels a sense of responsibility towards Islam. And so that's the council culture <laughs> in, that's baked into uh, Islamic theology. Uh, you leave the faith, you risk death. And not only did I leave the faith, and then I was also condemning so many tenets of the faith that were using the fact that religion is not separate from politics, the treatment of women, uh, the concept of jihad, uh, and, and then this closed-mindedness that there was no place for innovation within uh, Islamic philosophy. And all of these things were inviting um, death, basically, and, and threats, and also a life of condemnation. And on top of that, uh, with everything that came out, every time I gave an interview or wrote a piece or some, said something like that in public, um, I was bringing shame upon my family, not just the immediate family, father, mother, and siblings, but the extended family. And to a point, even a lot of Somalis were saying, you're so selfish, you don't understand you're doing this to us. And so that's for you, in a nutshell, uh, mm. why freedom of speech and freedom of conscience doesn't work in the tribal and theological philosophical frameworks. Well, I, I guess the distinction that, that, I was, that I was alluding to is one that just came out in what you were saying, um, and you're very involved in the debates in the US around free speech, and you've mentioned kind of woke culture and so on. But the difference between someone who has death threats, credible death threats, given that some of your collaborators have actually lost their lives, who has to think about their own security, and who has to bring shame and possibly even danger to their own families, is that's a very different kind of courage to the kind of courage that people say they have to have here to write an opinion piece that some of their colleagues don't like. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know, yeah. I, some, I sometimes yeah. find the tendency among some people in the US to say, oh, you're so brave, you know. So you write a book that people, that the, the Amazon doesn't like, and then you go on Sam Harris or kind of whatever, and people congratulate you for how brave you are, and then you get a sub stack um, <laughs> and start making lots of money. And, and, and so the, in some ways, I, I sort of think the difference is is instructive because there's a bit of a tendency to draw a false analogy, I would say. 
yeah. between the kinds of cultures where speaking out puts you at risk, where you, you are having to leave your family behind, and the ones where it's sort of socially uncomfortable. And I don't know, you said there are some similarities. I'm now drawing a very sharp distinction, and yeah. I'm being perhaps a bit unfair, and I'm accusing some of the people in the US of being whiners by comparison <laughs> yeah. to, to what others have faced. But um, I had Mustafa Akyol on a while ago too, and whilst he hasn't faced anything like you, you know, he did get thrown in jail yeah. um, in Indonesia, and his, his family's in Turkey. And so it, it's on the spectrum. It's not nothing like what you've experienced, but it's still very different to what, say, I might face by going on a podcast and saying something unfortunate. I think also the contexts are different. Um, so being a Muslim and growing up within a Muslim household and a Muslim society and knowing that physical punishment, capital punishment is very, very common, the threshold towards violence is much, much lower than in liberal societies. But I really want us to be very careful um, to not take all of this for granted and think, oh, we just couldn't fall back into that tribal way of life. I mean, living in America, I don't know where you are right now, but in America, just in the last year, we've seen a lot of social unrest and a lot, a lot of violence. And, um, and, and I think that if you... Um, I don't know. It reminds me of Thomas Hobbes. It's so with me coming back, coming away from that Hobbesian background, and you know, with immigration, we brought it with us. It, just because we crossed the border, it didn't, you know, liberalism didn't just rub off on us. Hmm. Um, I understand the distinction that you are trying to make, where you say, uh, you know, threats against your life are much more profound than uh, the fear of losing your job or the fear of losing your reputation. But within a peaceful liberal society, such things as losing your job, losing your reputation, um, and then also being condemned with, uh, if, if I just now call you a white supremacy, uh, supremacist and a racist and you can't defend yourself against it, I think those things are just as frightening in a different way. It's not a life and death matter. But to some, it is so profound that they've actually considered, I'm talking about some of the people in the United States, some professors have considered suicide. Uh, and I know of one story, at least, of a person who has done that. So the level of shaming achieves, uh, and the ostracization achieves pretty much the same goal in some ways as those who threaten you, you know, who are wielding knives and guns and, uh, and bombs and uh, using cars and anything that they can find as tools to kill. The similarities are where um, there is an abandonment of reason and persuasion uh, by means of reason. Either you are with these people and you believe, I'll use the New York Times and Barry Wise as an example. I'm a great admirer of Barry Wise, and I find her courageous. So she's just a young person who is, um, she has thrown herself at her journalistic career, and she's exceptionally good at it. She's with this flagship paper, and she has a lot of her colleagues um, uh, abusing her. Now, this is not physical abuse. They're not beating her up. They're, they haven't thrown her in jail. They can't do that. Uh, but they're abusing her mentally and psychologically because of the positions she holds, say, on the existence of Israel. 
and the senior people, the leaders in charge, are so frightened of the bullies within the New York Times that behind closed doors they would say to Barry, oh, you are so brave, oh, we stand with you, but they don't do anything about it. So for her to get out and go to Substack and just make this uh, fantastic recovery, it's, it's a pathway that I admire. And I think this is one of the... Um, the, the uh, advantages that we have in a society like America, where if all else fails, you can lean on the free market to say to the New York Times, screw you, and Substack comes along. And I think that's a great development. Yes, or, or podcasts. So the advantage of pl- plural societies is yeah. the advantage of plural societies is that they create that plural. I'm thinking of Andrew Sullivan as well as another, yes, yes. another example. So you get, get, you know, so I was only I was only partly joking when I said getting cancelled yeah. is a good career move for lots of people because yeah. they don't you know you can. But what I worry about, and I know that you've been involved in some of these debates about free speech and higher education, and we don't need to get into any of the the details here. But I think what worries me is is the segmentation, yeah. less than the silencing. So it feels to me as if like I can go and I can listen to Andrew Sullivan, I can read Barry Weiss, I can re- I, I, I can listen to your podcast, I, you know Christina Hoff Summers, who I know you've had on. I'm just yes. I read her stuff. It's not like it isn't there, and it's more more that it's separated. It's more that like if you want to read one kind of sort of group think, yeah. you go to the New York Times editorial page. If you want to read another one, you go somewhere else. And so it's more it's more this sense of having to pick sides that seems to me to be the problem because then you don't get the dialogue you don't get the yes. kind of s- exchange but the thing is i i think the problem is is different i think it is if you um i keep using the term liberal societies mm. <laughs> and and you already mentioned pluralism i think that we got used to a situation where what happened to me with Muslims saying, oh, somebody doesn't deserve to live or hold her job or be in polite society because she blasphemed, was seen as very strange in the early 2000s, or even with Salman Rushdie. A lot of the people in the West were just aghast. They, they had no clue why uh, the head of state of Iran <laughs> was bothered about a novelist in the UK, probably condemning him for a book he hadn't even read. But the situation today is different. The the plural society where we took it for granted, you can say, in fact, we lived by that, and most of us still do, where you think, why can't we just have all of these different voices? And uh, the audience gets to evaluate what it is that they're being persuaded uh, to agree to and freely agree to it or freely disagree with it and we move on. I think that's what we are losing and what the woke are bringing into the, um, in, 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 into our schools and universities and uh, areas of discourse is to say only one, there's only one true way of evaluating justice and equality and freedom and it's our way or no other way. And, and that's what's different. So when I first came in 2000, and uh, it wasn't the first time I settled in the United States in 2006, I was working at the American Enterprise Institute, and we were fraternizing with the Brookings Institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, going to events um, organized by Cato. Uh, I was, uh, there were Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and, uh, and liberals, uh, liberals in the American sense, 
uh, which is cr- probably closer to social democrats. Uh, perhaps that's mm. what you would think of them in, in the Netherlands. Uh, but these these um, conversations were uh, taken for granted, and in many ways uh, they were very friendly. Uh, I remember very polite. Uh, I would go to parties where Christopher Hitchens would rub shoulders with um, uh, people he had called all sorts of terrible names when they were in office. Um, you know, Dick Cheney would be there, and Christopher Hitchens would be there, and it was it was a wonderful thing, I have to say, uh, because. That's how it's supposed to be. And and I think we sort of took that for granted. And that's no longer possible. I think it is no longer possible because people have started to say, uh, I think they've been cowed. Um, And now we go back to cowardice. Uh, Mm. They've been frightened off by the woke, by the cancel culture, by the condemnations. You're not going to these places now in good faith. You're worried that somebody is going to you know, take something you said out of context and then the process, the social media pylon and cancellation begins. Yes, it's interesting. It, I, the, I, I would say, you know, I've, as I work at Brookings, I think there is actually think tank land in some ways I think is still in better shape in some, than, than academia. We do work a lot like with across those lines and it may be partly because it's closer to the practicality. Ironically, I think that when you're trying to actually get something done, you know, something quite dull perhaps like reforming the EITC <laughs> or whatever, then actually you do need to work with, and I have a lot of friends at AI, with the people at AI and try and get bipartisan uh, agreement for it. Whereas in the academy, when it's just intellectual, when it's supposed to be that exchange of ideas, in some ways because this because you're not trying to make policy you're just positioning yourself intellectually you're it's all about the it's all about the intellectual position i think it's um, worse i think it's worse i think there is actually an emerging ideology that wasn't seen in academia and was everybody thought it's not my problem i mean it's only concentrated in the gender studies department or in the black studies department it is something that doesn't touch me i don't care i remember when i was at harvard this is in 2012 13 14 i would see whiffs of this uh, thing and i just thought that just sounds so ridiculous and exactly like the way we started the conversation because the radical Islamists were trying to cancel me uh, on punishment of death, when a bunch of undergraduates come making demands, I would think, oh, come on, just give them a big cookie and a glass of milk and send them back to the classroom. And, and I, that tells me how we all underestimated it. And, I, and now in 2021, I think we're actually facing a, an, an ideology, um, modern, uh, homemade um, that is potent and that is just capable of um, of dividing society into tribes and factions and uh, where fear reigns, where people are literally afraid of what comes out of their mouths. Yeah, I think this idea of self-censorship, which I, I think is is actually a, a different kind of censorship, of course, and, and is sometimes understated. It wasn't in Mill, of course. He talked yeah. a lot about the, the tyranny of custom uh, and how that enslaves the soul itself and so on. He actually was more worried about the censorship that you, as a result of that tyranny, yeah. than he was about government censorship. And I think that's what you're talking about here is the sense of people just silencing themselves or censoring. And actually the thing that 
honestly, the thing that troubles me the most in this debate is when I hear people saying, I'm just not going to do any work in that area anymore. Yeah. I'm not, I, it's not, I, I'm just going to work somewhere else. And it's not that they, they're not going to say anything good or bad. I, I, they're just not, they're just not going to say anything. Yeah. And that's because of a rational, it's because of a rational calculation yeah. of cost benefit is that the cost of getting it wrong yeah. um, to reputation is pretty high and the benefits are pretty low. So why work, on, why work on the issue? I, I'll give you an example of a colleague who works on labor market issues and he's a white academic at a, you know, elite university. And he used to do a lot of work on race and he's increasingly decided just not to work on race um, and to work on other issues instead. He, uh, you know, and it's not that there aren't people working on race in the labor market. So mm. he just, I'll just leave that. But the reason he does that is because it's just, if you put a, he feels like he puts a foot wrong, yeah. it could destroy his whole reputation. So it's that almost like the, it's almost like what we're not doing and what we're not saying becomes more of a problem. Absolutely. And it's, and, and then if you, you know, take this to its logical conclusion, that is an erosion of this whole process of critical thinking, which is how we got where, how we became so advanced as societies, was to pursue any of these questions and see where they lead and bring all the different perspectives that you can bring into to get to that process of verifying and falsifying. You know, you see what holds up and what doesn't hold up. But now you just have a very uh, an ever narrowing list of areas that you may study and areas that you have to stay out and away from the uh, critical race theory people constantly racialize everything and they've made us aware that's a compliment to them that there is actually an injustice where black people in this country are not represented in uh, the labor market in uh, top and you know uh, all sorts of positions of prominence um, that they make uh, a fraction of what their white uh, countrymates make. So there is, in my view, in fact, a pressing need to look into it and not chase researchers away from trying to figure out why that is and what are all the factors that lead or have led to that outcome and how can we change it. But the critical race theories will not allow any other way of looking at the problem other than the way that they, the way they see it. And the way they see it is divisive and it's destructive. And in, that's, in my view, divisive and destructive by saying we have to bring down the structures and begin with a clean slate. And, you know, every white mm. person is a racist and an oppressor. And we have to sort of get into this crazy redistribution matrix that they have in their heads. Uh, that has consequences, and I think the consequences are not so great. And that is where self to go back to self censorship. I think self censorship is a way of surrendering um, the platforms that we have, uh, the market of ideas, to a tyrannical few. It's not a large number of people we're talking about. We're talking about a very small number of people, very loud and very aggressive and shameless. But we are surrendering our institutions to them. And it's not just the institutions of higher learning. It's now in elementary schools and high schools. It's in the media. It's, they've come for, you know, uh, the institutions that uphold the law, the rule of law, so that we can have conversations without violence. They're, they're literally infiltrating and getting into every and poisoning every institution with this identity politics. And we are repaying them with self-censorship. Self-censorship is, to me, it's not just a matter of cowardice. It's, it's a matter of surrender. Mm, it's interesting to reframe this as 
these cultures are created by many, many, many small acts of courage and many, many small acts of cowardice, on the other hand, rather than these big heroic ones. So it's easy to see a story like yours as a kind of heroic individual standing up in a very, very prominent and courageous way. But I think what we're circling around here is the idea that it's actually the accumulation of millions of moments of deciding whether to hold your tongue or say what you really think. I mean, actually, this idea of truthfulness that I learned from Bernard Williams (laughs) is very helpful to me here, which is that actually truthfulness is just trying to be accurate and trying to be sincere. Yes. Um, and that value of truthfulness being uh, um, being the thing that I think lies at the heart of the discourse that you're talking about. I want to talk a bit more about Islam now, if that's okay. Just because on the one hand, you sort of, yeah. like, you're one of these people that's fight that's sort of fighting you know, on eight different fronts at once. And I was thinking a bit about your critique of Islam, including in your most recent book, Pray, but more generally, which I think is similar in the sense that it determine it predetermines the arena within which you're allowed to think. Yes. So you have to think, you have to believe in God. So this idea of the arena is set uh, by a certain ideology is a similarity, I think, between your criticism of what you call woke culture here and, and Islam. And you think it's constitutive of Islam and it has implications for how we think about immigration, which we'll, I'll turn to in just a second. But I'm going to quote you. You said this in 2015. Um, you're quoted as saying, the problem isn't just a few rotten apples yeah. in the Islamic community, but the entire basket. And your your criticism of Islam is that its problems are constitutive of the religion itself because of uh, the way it teaches, because of the way it operates. And so you can't you can't do what Mustafa Akil said, which is, oh, there's a liberal version of Islam, or maybe you think there is a liberal version of Islam available, but you think that this is, the illiberalism is baked in from the very ground of Islamic theology. There are liberal Muslims, and I think it's very, very important conceptually to separate Islam as a set of ideas from the people who adhere to Islam. So the adherence from the philosophy. And if you look at the adherence, there's a great deal of diversity. Uh, There are, I would say, the large majority are in fact indifferent and would really, they just want to worship and go about the business and live their lives and are not sitting around philosophizing about, you know, <laughs> what did Muhammad say when and how and they don't, they, they don't have the time and the luxury to do that. Um, but there, there are subsets within Islam and still a minority and so Mustafa has a point there. A minority, again, very loud, very aggressive, who are saying, we need to adhere to the philosophy of Muhammad, uncensored and unmodernized, and you have no right to innovate it because you are neither a prophet of God nor are you God. And to think about innovation is to put yourself in the shoes of God or Muhammad, and that is the biggest blasphemy ever. And that's one minority. I call them Medina Muslims. I call them Medina Muslims because when Muhammad, the prophet, the founder of Islam, went to Medina, that is when he transitioned uh, from a process of trying to persuade people to come to his religion when he was in Mecca. And when he comes to Medina, he starts to use force and it pays off. And it pays off wildly that they become an empire. And so you can't, in a way, you can see why the minority who want to adhere that if they're seeking glory, that's the way to go, because that's the example that Muhammad set. 
The large majority are what I would just describe as Mecca Muslims, those who came or who think that they came or who were born into Islam, but who think that they came to Islam through persuasion and not through force. And then there's a small minority, I think Mustafa Akiwal is one of them, who are willing and have the courage to say, we need to modernize. We need to modernize this philosophy. So the real conversation then is between the Medina Muslims, those who are saying, let's adhere to Islamic, the Islamic beliefs in you know, pure form, and those who are saying, let's modernize. In that debate, if you were a jury or a judge and you were to review the material, you are going to see that it is baked into it. You know, the Prophet Muhammad said, no innovation. Uh, he used force to spread the religion. It's called jihad, holy war. And even after Muhammad died, there were a number of people constantly who were trying to adapt, uh, not just in life, in practical life, but the philosophical framework. They were trying to adapt it to the reality of the day. And let me call them innovators or reformers or whatever you want to call them, modifiers. They were the ones who always got into trouble. They were always exiled or killed. Or, and some of their material is still available. It's, it's been preserved. But that the impulse to, to change things and to innovate was always there in Islam. So I have to give, I have to say, Mustafa Akiol and the others who want to liberalize, they have a point and they have a tradition to build on. But they can't build on that without actually having a dialogue, a philosophical dialogue with the founder of Islam himself. And, 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 in, and to do that, you have to go through the accusations of blasphemy. And you have to go through the accusations of being called a heretic and being cancelled. Uh, and in the day and age of the Internet, I think it's, uh, it's really quite potent. Because in 2001, when I first started out speaking and first realizing that there was a firewall around the Islamic belief system, I was very pessimistic and thought the only way out for good Muslims is really to get out of the religion like I have done. Because if you stay within, you're going to accomplish nothing. And now fast forward in 2001, after having seen so many people uh, accomplish a lot within the framework of the religion, I'm much more optimistic. And so, but it does pay to, take, to go through the pain uh, of asking questions. Yes, and that's what people like Mustafa are doing. But it's so it sounds as if you do think it's possible to create a new space within which to reform Islam, but it requires changing the rules of the game uh, in the way that you've just described. And so there's a sort of so the actual. I mean, Mustafa thinks we have to go back a long way, right? He doesn't think this is just. It's not a quick. It's not a quick fix here, mm -hmm. um, and it requires a shift in the very theology with which you approach things like the hadiths yes. and the Prophet Muhammad and so on. But but he thinks that could be done. That there is an alternative path that Islam could have taken. It went. It went. It went the wrong way. Sort of four hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we've got to go back at least four hundred years. Um, <laughs> And that's, but it sounds no, like you think it that's at least the wrong way 1400 years ago. <laughs> ah, well, that's the difference between you and Mustafa, maybe, right? So that's the difference. Yeah. There you go. It's like, <laughs> because if you took it to its extreme, right? If you take the, was it 400 years ago or 1400 years ago? Uh, it certainly wasn't four or 40 years ago, yeah. right? Um, 
That does lead to some different implications in terms of what the long-run goal here is. Yeah. So what someone like Mustafa would say is the long-run goal here is to completely reground Islamic theology in a way that makes it compatible with modern liberalism. Another view is that's an impossible task just to do that. And so in the end, the only thing we can do is just try to get rid of Islam, hope that we will end up in a world one day where there is no Islam, because it's just it's it's irredeemable in that sense. I think that that's fanciful and that's just not going to happen. Um, But there's a pragmatic way of looking at things and saying there are people right now I mean, leaders of nations take the crown prince of Saudi Arabia um, and uh, the leader of the UAE, um, the president of Egypt. They're exploring pragmatic ways of modernizing their nations. And Saudi Arabia is a very interesting case because that's where the Hijaz is, where Mecca and Medina are, you know, one-fifth of humanity, when they pray, they face Mecca. It's got all this symbolic power. It's the birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad. That's where he's buried. And so what Saudi, and it's also Sunni Islam. So the Sunnis are about 85% of Muslims. So what happens in Saudi Arabia is very, very interesting for this change that we are all longing for. And if the Saudis do take that pragmatic step, very pragmatic, not theological, they're not looking into the philosophical framework, but they want to modernize their society away from oil and say, join the wider economy. That forces them to review their school systems. It forces them to educate their women. It forces them to bring science into the classroom because they're fascinated with technology. Once you bring science into the classroom and science into society, you are opening the gates wide for asking questions and critical thinking and criticizing because things either fail or they succeed. And with that, he then has to take these practical measures of saying, okay, I'm going to emasculate uh, the morality police. They're just not going to be, he just abolished them. Hmm. That's pragmatism. That's a process that I think then people like Mustafa who want to do the, who wants to give this a theological justification, they can do it. And I think ultimately it's this collaboration consciously or unconsciously, wittingly or unwittingly, that is going to open a new path for what could be a new Islam. A new, mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 you know, ultimately, because every time you, you let's say, the morality police, you say, but what would the Prophet Muhammad say? Well, at some point, you will have to give an answer to that. <laughs> right, because and every... Yeah, <laughs> they hold their... <laughs> They all they have their police. Yeah. Well, Mustafa was arrested. He was arrested by the morality police. So yeah. he's got some experience uh, of this. Yeah. What where this I think becomes quite real in terms of policy is. Let's talk a bit about your most recent book, um, Pray, where you and this is a good example of you know uh, being pretty fearless in terms of your your thinking, where you you describe the rise in crime in certain European. Um, countries, you know, especially places like Germany. Um, crime against women. Crime against women especially. Yeah. And you show that that is related to 
the rise in Muslim immigration and therefore make the argument that it's because Muslim men in particular come to Western Europeans, so they're, they're immigrants from predominantly Muslim, traditionally Muslim countries and bring with them an attitude towards women and a view about women and about violence, which then plays out in higher levels of violent crime against women. And then, and you ask Western feminists why this isn't, um, why this isn't kind of more of an issue. And so this is, you said earlier, I think that liberalism doesn't just rub off on you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and this is kind of, and I think you, pre you present some pretty good evidence where you've been able to find it, that there is there is at least some connection there. But have I have I described the basic thesis correctly? You have. You've described it correctly, and I think that it's. Uh, when I just want to um, say a little bit more about. Uh, they come from traditionally Muslim countries, but they also come from tribal societies, and so their attitudes towards women are shaped by these two forces. And, and there's a third so, force, which is uh, what they perceive Western as Western culture to be and, and as white women to be, because their perception of... Uh, and there's one Egyptian whom I quote uh, in the book who tells me that it is, yes, it's the tribal and it's traditionally Islamic, but it's also uh, this idea that they get over the internet and uh, cinema, television and so on, that the white woman can only be seen through the lens that they see of Hollywood and pornography, and then uh, a third set of women who, women who come to the NGOs, work in NGOs. And some of these women are looking for lovers or they're looking for husbands. And it, it, they, they come with these preconceived notions about what it is that they think the white woman wants. Uh, and that is a toxic mix. <laughs> and then and, and those attitudes then actually play out and that's not that's the subject of the book and and the other part of the book is then when these crimes against women occur so first we saw crimes against women uh immigrant women immigrant women being subjected to those attitudes from home being forced into marriage female genital mutilation honor violence and these women were not protected. The immigrant women were not protected. The attitude of feminists and the general public was, you know, they would try a few times and, and then say, well, it's a difficult problem. It's just their problem and they'll emerge out of it. So they ignored the suffering of the immigrant women. And the scale of immigration from these countries got ever bigger and it will get bigger only. And now it's spilling over to the public space where these men, some of these men are attacking all women. And the, the reaction, the response from those whose responsibility it is to uphold the law has been disappointing, and the feminists have been really quiet and, and incurious. Because of the, the commitment to cultural sensitivity and so on that you talk about. But so if, we, if, if you just treat this as an empirical question, for a moment, right? Let's leave aside the implications of these findings, and we'll come come to those because because I do think there are some legitimate reasons why people would be concerned uh, not to overemphasize the data. But when you you've gathered data, and I'll just share a couple of data points from your book, which is you show that between 2014 and 2018, the share of non-Germans among those accused uh, uh, suspects in cases of sexual violence rose from 18 percent. To 29%. You show that in 2018, of the, is about a thousand rape cases that were reported, more than half of the uh, suspects, it was 55%, were not Austrian 
citizens. And 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 the book is you know you've really tried hard to get data even when it's hard to get. And so as an empirical matter, those are hard facts to ignore. And it seems to me, just reading it just purely empirically, as if to the extent that you can get the data, the case is supportive of this idea that there's at least a connection there between them. But I guess my question, my question then would be, these are still very small numbers in the aggregate, right? And so the danger then is of what you'd call statistical discrimination. Um, there are lots of different types of groups who are overrepresented within a certain criminal group, you know, black Americans within the US, for example, mm. for all kinds of reasons. Mm. But that doesn't mean that that should change the way we treat individuals, and certainly individual Muslims. So, you know, we'll get on maybe to hijab and, and other things too. But those are that there's an overrepresentation of these immigrant groups within a very small number of these crimes. And so, is there a reason to be careful not to highlight that disproport? Is because when it gets out into the public, what people hear is all these Muslim men are raping all these women and lose the fact that it's a very, very tiny minority. And you end up with this statistical discrimination where you look at Muslim men differently because a tiny minority, albeit a slightly higher proportional minority, are engaged in these crimes. So um, a couple of things on that, <laughs> and I think I say it in the book. Um, I think that I agree with you. It's uh, relatively small at the moment. It was smaller 10 years ago and even smaller 20 years ago. But the... Um, the buzz was there that things were different and that men from largely Muslim countries behaved differently towards women, whether it was their women or other women. Um, my and, and the reason why I wrote this book is I think that you should address these problems while they're relatively small because you, you can, don't get yourself into a place where the problems become too big to solve, that you get to... Uh, and I've seen this in other crime areas where you say, well, let's just legalize it. So to me, it's unthinkable and unacceptable for us to say, let's just stop criminalizing um, some, you know, like sexual harassment or certain types of violence against women. Hmm. We don't have the resources for it. It's just too big. So address the problem while it is relatively small. Uh, on the statistical discrimination where you think, and this is exactly, you know, the, getting the empirical uh, data was like pulling teeth. People, these governments just don't want to do it exactly because of what you say. There's this fear that if you release this information to the general public, there's going to be the attitudes towards immigrants will be very, very negative. I think the opposite is actually true. Because in a democratic society, when your leaders lie to you and tell you what you've just experienced is really very small, insignificant, or non-existent, that's when you start to take hatred, not, towards, not only towards the leaders who are telling you these things, but also towards immigrants. And if you look at today's Europe, it's very different from the Europe that I came to in 1992. In 1992, there was this naive opening of and I'm talking about in general, there were minorities who rejected immigrants, but the general public was welcoming and, uh, and, and felt a sense of empathy and talked incredibly about their own experience with the Second World War and with tyranny and so on. And so they were very welcoming of people who were coming from countries that had fallen apart, like mine in Somalia. Today, the attitude has changed dramatically. 
everywhere you go, in Germany, in France, in Sweden, uh, in all of these countries, you have very entrenched far-right or populist parties who have only one issue, immigration and Islam. And in my view, the only way to defeat them and to blunt their advancement is to address these issues honestly. And that's mm. the purpose of the book. So I think that the, the fear that if we talk about these things openly or if we uh, uh, take the voters seriously, then the far right will uh, prevail. It's, it's empirically wrong. The more we sweep these things under the rug, the more powerful the far right get. I think, I, yes, I think it's an interesting broader point too is because someone will someone will get under the rug. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you can't sweep it there forever. And I think it's, in some ways, it loops back to where we were a moment ago talking about this, about truthfulness and, and accuracy, which is if you start, if people start to lose faith in yeah. public institutions, you can think about actually public health institutions in the light of COVID or et cetera. If you start to think that they're not, they're not just sharing the data faithfully, uh, anymore um then you start to doubt it and someone will pick it up and, the, and you say this in the book you said it will get weaponized by the far right and you have a great quote which i can't like found now but i'm using it somewhere else from a i think a dutch jewish lawyer is my memory of it saying something like if if responsible parties don't deal with real issues irresponsible parties will that's an axiom of history i'm I'm yes. paraphrasing. Yes, absolutely true. And also a third thing that you ju- you said it yourself, which was uh, treat everyone else. Uh, you should treat immigrants the way you treat everyone else. That's precisely what I believe. When there is sexual violence committed by a native in those countries, they are treated, they are ostracized out of their communities, they're stigmatized. Um, they are, I mean, I know that the legal framework, the legal system in, uh, in, in Europe is very lenient compared to the one in Europe, but everything is thrown at them. And that's precisely what I'm asking for. Treat the immigrant perpetrators in exactly the same way as you would treat the native perpetrators. Stop using the cultural excuses. Mm. And you make the point, actually, that culture is used in different ways. Sometimes it's, you're not allowed to use culture and sometimes you are. And I was thinking even within the US, I'm spending a lot of time in the southern US right now. And the idea of the honor culture among certain communities in the southern US is very strong. I know this guy whose sister's boyfriend was beating her up. And so he went and broke both his legs and ended up going to prison as a result and doesn't regret it at all because there's a kind of honor culture thing. And and so people would say quite happily, well, it's a very different culture in, say, the white working class Appalachia. But they'd be very reluctant to say there's a different culture in certain <laughs> Islamic societies. Well, I know I need to let you go. Yes. Um, kept you a little bit longer I think than the, I like. They've stopped harassing me now. They're harassing you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, because I know you've got to jump yeah. off to another, another call. I keep getting so I, many text messages. You need to come. You need to come. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure. Well, I don't know if the, I, I don't know if the pinging came through to our audience. But, um, they they will know that you're, you're not making it up. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like we've we've sc- we've just scratched the surface of a lot of these issues. But um, in in terms of sort of continuing to call it as you see it and engaging these debates, and and also I you know thank you for engaging with me and the areas we disagree as much as the ones where we do. I think that's the whole purpose that's of the this whole exercise. Purpose, right? yeah. That's the whole point. Yeah. That's the whole yeah. point. So with that, I wish you well and thanks for coming. Thank on. you very much. Thank you for having me. Good luck. Thank you for doing this.
Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.